Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 32 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. We are back today to talk about an update in markets and uh, tipping and some other things. Uh, Today we are recording, it is September 7th, it's 9.52 in the morning uh, here on the West Coast Pacific time. And on today's episode, we're gonna talk about some home sales data. We quoted an article last episode that we feel actually was not correct, so we wanted to correct that and bring some updates. Uh, Tipping is everywhere, have you noticed that? Like, everywhere, (laughs) thought we'd unpack that. TikTok is, uh, there's some interesting, uh, how found this article on an interesting topic of TikTok and their aging filters, uh, and then some other things about banks and uh, and employment. How, where should we start today? Should we start with homes? Yes. All right, let's do it, let's do it. So last time we quoted this article, it was actually a LinkedIn article and uh, basically we did some more research and we found that it was kind of wrong. So we, we said last episode that US home sales fell nationally, but not in the West. And um, it just seemed a little bit off to us. And so we started digging a little bit deeper. And how I'll let you expand on this. What did you find? And, and let's unpack the, the actual data that you found. Yeah, yeah. So the headline said um, home sales fell across the U.S. except um, month over month that actually went up in the West Coast. Um, so there's Northeast, what, Southeast and West and South. I think that there's four regions. Um, Northeast, the, Midwest, South, Midwest. Thank you. and West. Yeah. So um, if we're looking at the South and the Midwest, that's actually seeing the most migration in terms of people leaving the, the, the Northeast region and then leaving the West. That's a trend that has actually been going on for the last few years. So the data that Chris was saying we were had to look into because this, this article said the West was growing. Yes, in home sales, the West was growing, but comparatively uh, in July, the South sold 1.6 million homes. The West sold 670,000 homes. So nearly a third of the volume of the South, right? You think the South, the Florida areas, the uh, probably North Carolina areas where there's just heavy migrations of people wanting to leave expensive states, right? And they're, they're seeking greener pastures in the Southern states and there's high sales volume. That high sales volume did dip in the South. They were down 2% month over month in July. And across the entire housing market, we're down nearly 25% on average across all housing, which makes sense, right? Because who's buying a house with 8% mortgage or 7% mortgage rates that they can afford? 3.65 million people. Yeah, still people are still buying. Um, and then if you're looking at early in the year, 
the West home sales has been shrinking and it's still consistently one of the lower along with the Northeast region one of the lower home sales volume regions in the country right so the Midwest and the South have have been gaining home sales right either through um, uh, existing home sales or this is existing data but I'm pretty positive that Florida is experiencing the, the highest construction rates of new homes as well mm. so people interesting to overlay population data on this too because i think the west region is less dense and there's just less people living in the west region i think that might even only have i don't know four or five six states in it um, versus the south is a huge area midwest yeah. is a little smaller than the northeast is super dense and so I'd, I'd be curious to see total population and then and then by percent yeah. like what percent is is being sold i think that would actually show us which regions are turning over um but but I think the data here is at least saying that um, sales, as you said, they're down about 24% year over year, but there's still a lot of people moving. Um, July of 2022, 4.8 million homes changed hands. July of 2023, 3.65 million. It's a lot different. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Rocket, Rocket Mortgage uh, reported that 33% of outmigration is coming from the West. And this was an article in May. Um, 33% of people leaving the West and 50% of that 33% is our Californians, right? They're leaving for Texas or for Florida or more cheap, cheaper States. So again, it's, the data is pretty, uh, pretty robust and it flies in the face of that first article that we quoted last week. That this data is from Redfin, which, yep. sorry to interrupt you here the status from redfin and redfin like fantastic data plus one on their economic data um so top 10 metros where home buyers are moving into uh i'll just read you the the top five vegas phoenix tampa orlando and sacramento where are you coming from la seattle new york new york and san francisco and then to round that out, it's other Florida and Texas uh, cities. So it's interesting. People are moving from expensive areas of California, expensive areas of Washington, and New York primarily. Yep. And they're moving into much, much lower cost areas. Yep. And then uh, the cousin this is of also, that is the outflows, right? Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. The outflows, uh, as you mentioned, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles are the biggest regions with outflows going to, I guess, no surprise, Seattle, Washington from San Francisco, which is uh, uh, one tech hub to another tech hub. Uh, but a lot of San Franciscans are going to Sacramento. Uh, New Yorkers are going to Miami, Florida, almost exclusively here. And then uh, Los Angelinos are going to become Las Vegans. It is worth noting on here that it's, it appears to be slowing. So some of these net outflow numbers, we have Q2 of 2022 data, and then we have Q2 of 2023 data. And San Francisco, for example, Q2 of 2022, 39,000 outflow. Q2 of 2023, 28,000 outflow. So quite a bit less. Seattle, 16,000 outflow 2022 to 3,900 in 2023. Um, LA, 32,000 outflow in 2022, uh, 20,000 
in 2023. The only one that's close is New York. 26,000 outflow in 2022, 24,000 outflow in 2023. Everybody else is a significant decrease year over year. Yeah, and I think we were implying return to office was was a big cause of the 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 West growth. I use work quotes there, at least with the article suggesting. I don't, I, I don't think we're seeing any evidence of that. I think remote work or or decoupling of headquarters hubs in um, you know coastal cities is still mm-hmm. strong. That's that's faded away, and it looks like it's it's here to stay at least for a while longer. Well, I know with Amazon, for example, they, you know, they have a return to office mandate that says you got to be in three days a week. Yeah. And they basically said, you just have to be in to your closest office location three days a week. So if you live in the greater Seattle area, you got to come into headquarters. Uh, if you lived in Texas, I believe there's a Texas office, but you got to go to Texas. Um, if you live in, I don't know, Pennsylvania, you got to get to New York. Uh, to get over there. And so basically they said it was like four or five hubs that they had across the country that they said, you've got to get to one of these offices. Um, you know, otherwise don't commit at all. It's kind of what they said. Um, but, uh, they, in other words, they aren't forcing everybody to move back to Seattle. So that's probably why we haven't seen a significant inflow back to headquarters areas. And also that greatly affects the Bay area. Um, so maybe an interesting point. Also kind of a fun fact, Zoom of all companies is making people return to the office. How about that? <laughs> big, big irony there. Right. But, um, just musing with Amazon real quick is New York, um, you know, famously gave a lot of, was it New York or Virginia that they ended up going with? Virginia. HQ2. Yeah. Uh, Virginia gave a lot of uh, tax incentives. So if you suddenly don't have a population to go work physically there, where are the taxes going? I'm not too much of a payroll expert there, payroll tax expert, but I would figure that the lack of people physically in the, the area just adding to the economy, like during the lunch hours or happy hours or whatever in terms of spend while they're at work, they can make wherever Podunk Town in Virginia, that one HQ2 for Amazon, too happy. So I know that how they structured that deal was they had to add a certain number of high paying jobs by a certain date. Yeah. And there were these cliffs. And so they had to have X number of jobs by this date and then, and then Y number of jobs at this date and so on. Um, and so, and, and then based on that is, is how they're getting their tax benefits. And so the, the benefit to the city is they're bringing in these high paying yeah. jobs to the city, um, uh, by, you know, moving people there and you've get the, you get the economic stimulus from, from having those people live there. So, um, I know that companies are now offering reload packages again, so I am sure Amazon is doing that when they're hiring new people. I know that they're not really hiring a lot of new people right now, but as that starts back up, um, you know, if you're going to be in Virginia, they're going to give you a reload package to move from Florida to, to be close to headquarters. Yeah. And they have incentive behind that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think you just kind of trace back to where the incentives lie. Yeah. And why the push for return to office is so strong with certain companies, because yeah, they, a lot of these bigger companies are subsidized by the local tax base. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Can we talk about tipping? Yeah, this is a frustrating topic for everyone. I think. Kick, yeah, kick us off. Yeah, so tipping, nothing new, right? You go to a restaurant, server gives you pretty good service, you're gonna tip, right? But 
I think Same standard. We, yeah, I think what we've seen since uh, COVID is this this increase in self checkout, the increase of of going to uh, takeout window, and then when you pay, what what do you get? Right, you, you just bought a coffee today, right? Like, what what did you see in terms of the options once you paid or once um, you swiped your card? So it was like one, two, three dollars, which I think is the smart way to do it. There's kind of two ways to do it, right? You can do a flat dollar amount yeah. or a percentage. Yeah. And uh, I think it is smart in the case of a coffee shop to put a flat dollar amount. Um, I I would assume that those those POS portal um, um, terminals, whether it's Toast or whoever, I bet they give you data on here's the product that you're selling. You should yeah. either use the flat dollar amount or the percentage. Um, because you know, my tip, if it was a percentage might've been 93 cents, uh, but I clicked the dollar and so it rounds up, uh, by the way, I, I'm not a coffee drinker. I will sometimes get a coffee. It's kind of a treat for me. Uh, I got a, this morning I got a 12 ounce. Okay. This is going to tell you how bougie I am, <laughs> but whatever. Um, it is what it is. Okay. I got a 12 ounce, 12 ounce iced hemp milk latte how much was that with tip i tipped a dollar so i'll give you that as a as a as a well, fun i know fact. i know how the much answer. i guess seven dollars initially because i know coffee coffee inflation is so crazy right now 750 750 oh my god i mean anyway that's just insanity it's insanity yeah, yeah so, so the the tipping side of it is you're, especially if you're at a takeout window, they're not serving you. They're, it's a transaction. You're buying a burger, you're leaving. They're not cleaning up after you. You're paying for the burger. The issue is, is that the, the behavioral side of it, as Chris implied with toast, is putting a dollar doesn't really seem like a lot, but in terms of percentages on a $6 coffee, that's a pretty hefty tip, right? I imagine they didn't. They didn't pour the drink into your mouth for you, right, Chris? Or did they? That's correct. Yeah, take the, I have to do that part. They didn't take the coffee out to your car for you. They didn't do anything above turning around, filling up the coffee cup, and giving it handings to you, right? It was kind of a drive-through, so I suppose yeah. there was a handoff. You know, yeah. roll down the window. <laughs> Does that warrant a tip? Cup went in, yeah. and well, however, somebody made it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so it wasn't, so, you know, the, the, the reverse of that is if I'm at the grocery store and I buy a little can, yeah. you know, one of those little can, like blah, 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 latte thing. Like one of those nitro cans that you can yeah, get these yeah. days. Should I tip a dollar on that can? No. Yeah. And I think what we're harping on, at least with these articles, um, CNN tipping and then New York post, we'll go to the post one in a sec. CNN, <clears throat> there's this behavioral component. It's like guilting people and tipping, right? Because I went to... It's hard I'm to a, push now. Yeah, as good as a father as I am, I, I feed my kids little Caesar pizzas because those $5 or $6 pepperoni pizzas are super cheap. Same thing. Uh, <clears throat> once I paid for my pizza, the, the POS system asked for a tip. I'm like, for what? I paid for the pizza. Why am I tipping? But the worker was standing right there. So this pain of guilt where if you hit no tilt tip, you suddenly look like a jerk, right? Mm. So you, if you feel obliged to tip for someone who didn't really provide the service above and beyond what this transaction was. <clears throat> so that, I think that's where most people's problems with tipping are. 
and we're seeing it more and more. Okay, back to coffee. If I get something like a latte, <laughs> you had to, you know, you had to grind, you know, you had your little thing and you ground the beans and you put it in the, in the espresso thing and then you tapped it down and then you, you, I yeah, don't know yeah, what yeah. it's called. You made the shot and then you dumped it in the thing and then you dumped in whatever milk and then you, you mixed it and you gave it to me. I think that warrants a tip. However, let's say I go get a tea, hot tea. It's literally just the pour water in, put bag in cup, yeah. hand out the door. Is that a tippable thing? At least is that a tippable thing at that same dollar rate, assuming the dollar is our benchmark here? Or a drip coffee? I mean, somebody made the drip coffee. Yeah. I think this is kind of the issue, right? It's like you try to go through your head and you're like, okay, a tea? Which is like $4, by the way, which is insane. But uh, yeah, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think you should tip on a, a tea. Somebody just put a bag in a, in a cup of hot mm -hmm. water. Yeah. So I think these companies should... Uh, you know, um, my, my buddy's a philosophy major and you wouldn't believe the amount of, of demand he's gotten from the tech industry, um, mm -hmm. EA games, Expedia, how, cause they want to test how far they can push the behavioral limits and be still be a philosophically ethical company. And I think these POS systems like toast need to really assess their behavioral nudges on how they're guilting people to tip. I think that I think it would be a real problem because Bill Caesars. I don't know if you're familiar with them, Chris. They they, they pre cooked the pepperoni pizza. All the guy had to do was turn around, pull a pizza out of the uh, like the pre box pizza. He's not boxing it up for me. It's pre box. He turns around, pulls it out, gives it to me, demands a tip. <laughs> Does not work with me, but <clears throat> especially if I feel guilty for not leaving a tip to this guy. He's standing right there, and he sees me touch no tip because I didn't think his service was <laughs> was above and beyond, um, you know, requiring a tip. Do you tip the same for takeout versus sitting sitting at a restaurant? Uh, no, no, I don't either. Uh, unless again, it we my wife and I have like our favorite mom and pop restaurants. Yeah. We do tip them. Uh, yep. be, just because we like to support our local business. So, so yeah, if McDonald's started asking for a tip, I'd, I'd have some real problems there. Understood. Yeah. We're in the same boat. Yeah. So. Uh, I'll just read this quote and we'll move on. So a recent study by <laughs> Purdue University and Temple University found that in a high number of cases, participants who were presented with a tip screen had a more, quoting, negative emotions to the payment experience than those who didn't. We're not alone there, see? Well, you're not alone. And it wasn't, that was a study that done in a fake scenario. So <clears throat> mm -hmm. how you feel in real life is probably very similar, but yeah, the, these companies are guilting you into tipping or not tipping. Let us know how you feel about tipping in the comments or send us an email at team at Concilia Wealth. We would love to hear your stories out there in the real world on what you are bumping into and being presented a tip screen and you're like, what? Why am I tipping on this? It's a normal thing. So we'd love to hear your stories and uh, uh, we'll chat about it next time. <laughs> yeah, so the New York Post story I was talking about was uh, self-checkout machines are starting to institute tips at the point of sale, which I think is beyond egregious. Um, I, I did run into this at an airport bookstore. Um, <clears throat> there was no one working and I just got, I think, a chapstick. and. I scanned, scanned it myself. No one helped me find the chapstick. So you spent two bucks. 
Yeah, I spent two bucks <laughs> and then asked the tip. I'm like, for what? Is that tip going back to my pocket? <laughs> Which is so so crazy that this tipping um, push is just it is getting everywhere and it's getting out of hand. Do you remember what the options were? Was it a flat dollar amount or was it? Was it was it percentage. Percentage. It was percentage. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, two dollars. It would have been like thirty cents or something like that. Interesting. On top of tax. And you felt guilty hitting no. <laughs> That's what it's there for. Yep. All right, let's move on. Uh, TikTok. You threw an article here in the doc about TikTok's aging filter and uh, what it's doing <laughs> to people. This is a quick side story. Um, we had a relative in town, and he's much younger than we are, so he's on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. No, was it Snapchat? I don't know. Hold on. I don't know. Anyway, he pulled out his phone and he had this filter and he basically just, you know, held the camera in front of our son, who's, you know, a little baby. And this filter made him look all old, you know, like a little grandpa. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was part funny and part kind of sad to see too. So I've, I, it's funny that you put this in here because I've recently like seen this filter. Um, and I had like negative emotions towards it, like seeing him much, much older. So anyway, what what did you see in this in this article, and what's what's the research say here? Yeah, this is more along the theme of behavioral finance with tipping. Um, uh, people don't really think about their future unless they kind of have uh, insight in what that future looks like, right? So the aging app in TikTok kind of makes them realize, oh, this is what I could look like when I'm older. What does older life look like outside of my looks, right? So my retirement, my, what I'm doing now, how, how it's impacting my older self, those kinds of things that, that researchers have started looking into with aging apps. It didn't have to be TikTok, but the fact that you could see yourself older with technology helps, helps you kind of envision what that future is. With this article here saying, or what's pasted in here, so while glimpsing a, at a more wrinkled you in the reflection may come as a shock, it's the steps you take immediately afterward that can help you increase your financial security in later years. But chances are you, you won't, won't do, do anything. anything. Yeah. So in the moment, you're, you, unless your 401k is up, you're, <laughs> you know, uh, it looks like another article is uh, 4 out of 10 people who have access to 401k don't contribute to the 401k. So if you do have mm. some kind of glimpse into your future and how bad that could be if you're not taking action to address it now, um, there's... Again, what they found is seeing your older self doesn't help, actually, <laughs> which is kind of defeats the the purpose for even trying to look into this. But at least they explored it. That's actually interesting. I mean, I have to just recognize the industry that I'm in and, and what it is that I do. But I feel like if you showed me this chart of like my investments or my net worth and my savings and you grew it over time. And if you just put some random face there with like a little family and then that yeah. face got older over Your time it wouldn't is, connect with me yeah. but if you ai'd me into the older looking me it would totally hit me be like oh my god that's gonna be that's me like in 20 years and 40 years and 60 years and stuff and like I, I i feel like that would actually hit me yeah but yeah maybe i'm just weird i don't know well i saw this youtube guy um, walking around it was some music festival down south uh southern california and they sell these little tents for like six thousand dollars a night and he was walking around asking people mm. how they could afford it and and what they do for work. 
a lot of them, young people, completely blowing their money, and he's praising them for it. He's like, oh, I'm glad you spent spent on this experience. I was like, you bought a tent in the middle of the desert for $6,000 a night. You have really bad financial decision-making because that's going to impact you at age 50. Is that Burning Man? They go for 6000 a night at Burning Man, or is that a different festival? Yeah, it was a... I'm not really hip, Something else? but yeah, it was a yeah, music festival. Of, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to regional banks. Regional banks have been pressured for a while, really out of fear. Um, so small regional banks have been pressured all year, as yep. we all know. This has been in the news. They've been sort of operating, this is from our perspective, out of fear that regulation would come that would say, hey, you need to hold more cash. You need to increase your reserves in order to be more safe. And that happened. So um, let's just chat about this for a moment. What happened with regional banks? What changed in their reserve requirements? And what does it mean? Yep. Uh, Regular listeners should know that this isn't new, but we've talked about where banks have been shoring up their balance sheets for something uh this is that one of the very first things was they've they're being forced to raise debt in case of a insolvency meaning they have to pay loans to cover their own tails and (laughs) those loans cost money especially what when interest rates are five percent i don't know what a bank rate Mm -hmm. can be but i know they're not paying zero percent on those loans and uh, mm-hmm. that just adds to another cost of doing business as a regional bank now. And this is, applies to banks that are <clears throat> carrying over $100 billion or more. And the previous mm. hurdle was $250 billion. So this is capturing a lot of, yeah, a lot of, mm. a lot of uh, mid-sized banks right now. That's interesting. I actually would be interested to see how many banks are actually under $100 billion. That seems like a really small number. Yeah. Or how billion. many want to purposely but, want to move under 100 billion now? By the way, 100 billion means what? 100 billion in outstanding loans? 100 billion in? I guess banks don't have assets, or do they? Do they? Liability, you know, the bank owns yeah, the good majority of my house. Is my house an asset on their balance sheet? Probably not, right? So what do you What do you mean by 100? 100 billion? Yeah, 100 billion meaning uh, how much they have in outstanding deposits. That's a measure of how big a bank is. Yeah. So essentially, if you have a hundred billion in deposits or more, you have to one not only cover that with a certain amount of cash in your reserves, but now you got to cover that with a certain amount of debt that you're paying into Mm -hmm. to cover to cover in case of you go under. Which you know, uh, FDIC isn't playing around. Regulators aren't playing around, and we we kind of forecasted trouble for regional banks and this is probably one of the very first steps what do you think the future of regional banking is then with this new regulation like what changes i don't see how they're profitable again a lot of regional banks are publicly traded so uh one see it. yeah yeah let's look at the stock price and two let's look at their viability or survivability because mm. <clears throat> i don't know if they'll be attractive to be bought out by a jp morgan chase but I just imagine bigger banks getting bigger because they're mm-hmm. they're just scooping up all these little banks now. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This will be a story that we'll probably come back to in six to twelve months because, as we commented on previously, 
just a, over 50% of all banking in the United States happens at the regional bank level. So these banks are incredibly pivotal to small business, yeah. small farms, uh, small tech, small everything, uh, even even midsize. Uh, you know, that specialized bank that works with, you know, the, the new developer, um, you know, even like a local home builder. So not like a DR Horton, but like a local home builder in your area, you'll probably see their signs. They yeah. work with small regional banks to extend their credit. Yeah. Or if you're uh, uh, building a spec home, that's most likely through a regional bank, the, the approval for the construction loan there. Exactly. Exactly. And so if that starts to dry up or if the rates become less competitive, man, I mean, that has a huge ripple effect. So um, this will be something that we're just going to have to watch. And maybe in six to 12 months, we come back and we can see, I don't know if we can even get you know, banking activity by lending or by deposits or something, but it'd be interesting to try to break down some data and then track it over time. Uh, this could be not good. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Silicon Valley Bank, Integrator Bank, and First Republic Bank. Thanks, thanks for everything. Let's uh, let's pivot to a minute for for a minute and talk about Nvidia. Nvidia has been the story stock of the year, and uh, you had a, a article here in the doc that says. Funds are being punished or fund managers are being punished for not owning NVIDIA or not owning as much as the index because, of course, NVIDIA has been so strong from a return standpoint. So if you didn't own enough of it, you missed that rally. So yeah. unpack this a little bit for our listeners. Um, what are you seeing here? Yeah, when Chris says funds, we, that's, we, we've referred it to as uh, smart monies using air quotes. Um, you know, these, these are professional money managers who are doing um, research and valuation Right, so they view majority of them view uh, Nvidia as relatively overvalued. Um, so relatively, the, yeah. So <laughs> that's a nice word. Yeah, but as a result, they've underweighted again. Something that's overvalued doesn't mean it's completely out of the fund manager's portfolio, right? So fifteen percent of three hundred thirty mutual funds benchmarked to the S and P. 15% of those had uh, index weight above the S&P 500 for NVIDIA. So uh, mm. off the top of my head, I, I know we talked about it before, how much NVIDIA has has a weight in the S&P now, uh, part of the Magnificent Seven. The stock's up over 230% this year, and we're only <laughs> nine months into the year. And <laughs> what an incredible run. It is trading times... Uh, uh, 24 times forward earnings, which is twice the amount of an already expensive 12 times earnings for the NASDAQ. Like uh, we mentioned what that kind of valuation means for future profits and what, or future expectations more importantly, right? And how they have to meet those. So what these smart money measures are in the conundrum for is one, do they load up on overvalued stock because it's up 230% a year? Right, just to keep up with the, right, the momentum, yeah, yeah, keep up with the index, and kind of jump in the the bandwagon and potentially run into the extreme sell-off that almost almost always comes, right? Or take their lumps, underperform, get criticized by the personal finance industry, um, who says just buy the S and P and never look look back. And we've, I think we've advocated mm -hmm. for a more diverse approach than that, even at younger ages, because things like that can explode pretty spectacularly. 
uh, just going back to 2001, it's just, I remember in 96, 97, everyone was just taking shots at Warren Buffett for not keeping up with the tech rally, right? And if you held yep. a diversified portfolio, you would yeah, you would have been hating uh, the lack of returns relative to the tech industry from that four-year period, but you were sitting very yep. pretty in 2001. Yeah, you did right? okay. If you were well diversified in, in 2001, you actually did okay. It was yeah. if you piled all your money into a dot-com mutual fund and it went down to, you know, dollar a share or something. Um, that was really the first one where people lost it all, you know, because they were all in on certain things yeah. and those things went literally to zero. That was, uh, and then of course that fear rippled back again through, uh, in 2008. But again, if you're well diversified, 2008, you fared worse because everything went down, but you did just fine on the recovery, yeah. which is what you would expect. Yeah, and if we had a professional money manager that we're paying suddenly load up on NVIDIA, right? Is that person suddenly skewered? Yeah, I'm just pointing out like a recent situation like Kathy Wood in 2021, 2022, where valuation wasn't a part of the equation in terms of stock selection for them, right? And yeah, they rode a high in 2020 and crashed spectacularly in the next two years. So you can't really gauge responsible money management compared to the the index when the index is just led by essentially what seven names yeah i mean in generally speaking we'd be proponents of indexing u.s markets right so this yeah. is like if you buy the s p yeah you, you own nvidia and you own it on the way up and maybe it's super overvalued maybe it's not maybe it'll just hold maybe it'll keep going no one knows until no one knows. until we yeah. we get there um, but I'm actually not surprised to see that most funds, I mean, you say 85% of funds have underperformed the index this year. To me, that's pretty average, right? Isn't it something like 80 to 90% of mutual funds that are trying to bench against the S&P don't beat it? Yeah. There's yeah. some statistic like that, right? And I remember last year, I, you know, I think it was one of the best years for active management against the S&P. Uh, because they held cash, yeah. They held cash, yeah. yeah. So they had, they had better or lesser downside capture on the market uh, as the market fell. But you know, in general, um, I think it would be would have been a bold call to own more Nvidia, being such a small company than growing. Um, I think you know one can do that as an individual investor, but as a professional money manager, you want to question: yeah. Should I have this huge weight uh, to this relatively small company and then ride it the whole way? Um, that may have never really happened. So yeah. I'm not surprised to see this actually. This actually seems pretty average to me, which is why generally just kind of buy the S&P for your large cap exposure. That does does better than trying to pick an active fund uh, and trying to beat the S&P. Yeah, yeah, because we've, we've argued in the past in this space, especially it's like, what are you gonna tell me about NVIDIA or Apple that already don't know? Sure. And then thousands of other smart people already don't know. How are you gonna, again, you beat the market by allocation, but we we can we don't know what a dangerous allocation is until we see it. But this is teetering very close to its potential danger. And again, you got to size down. You got to rebalance. What do you mean by danger? In terms of valuation, where Nasdaq, <clears throat> the Nasdaq is trading twelve times forward earnings, and then the Nvidia is trading times double that amount. Right. So by not reporting as rosy profit numbers in the future, we could be heading for 
bigger corrections because you just have follow the fall, right? Just because in that particular stock. Yeah. 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 Yep. It, you know, with that said, though, to, to give you the counterpoint, it would be an active decision to now go underweight NVIDIA, right? I mean, yep. the perfect, of course, hindsight, right? Like, should have been expensive. overweight NVIDIA yeah. for the 250% run or whatever it is. Yeah. And then whenever it decides to peak and if it comes down, then, good, of course, good luck we'll timing that, right? Good luck timing that, yeah, right, right. For, with all this momentum, it could hit 300% in a year over the next three months. And would you be shocked by it? But at what point do you do you call Nvidia expensive? And that, I think that's what the puzzle that the active managers always have to kind of keep watch out for. Because yeah. one, I have a benchmark that I have to beat, but I have to be at the same time responsible with my client's money, right? Right. Because Kathy Wood famously just bought regardless of valuation, and a lot of times she was the only buyer in a lot of situations, and that's that's very hard to sustain over longer periods because valuations always tend to come into play. It's just a matter of when. But those wins can go years, mm-hmm. right? We could go years with this where smart money calls this overvalued, and then they keep lagging. And is wrong, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, again, we don't make those bets. Uh, we, we we hold diversified portfolios, but we don't yeah. really go active in the large cap space because stuff like this does happen quite a bit. Yeah, we're not here to try to make the call on selling nvidia at the right time or buying it or who's going to be the next one that's for sure yeah and stay away from anyone who who thinks they know because they don't all right let's shift to our last topic so the great resignation is over um this is probably clear to a lot of our clients who are listening to this um many of you have been called back to the office and uh many have been given an ultimatum of if you don't show up x days a week you're done and uh, I think that came after months of saying, hey, come on back. And then people weren't badging in enough. And then uh, sort of the, the hammer dropped and said, no, you have to be back. And uh, I've had some conversations with a handful of clients. And exceptions are hard to come by. Um, they're really, really holding tight on forcing people to, to come back in. And so really, this is the pendulum that was employees had the upper hand for the last couple of years. And it was like, I want you to work for me. You can work from wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. I'll ship you lunch. Not really, but you know, like <laughs> that kind of thing. To now the pendulum has swung back to saying employers are now having the upper hand. Um, I think this will be interesting to see with pay. We've seen employee pay, particularly in kind of the upper level uh, white collar and, and like tech type jobs, but really across a lot of uh, high level mm. white collar industries, wages have gone up a lot. Now we're seeing those wages stagnate, and then we're seeing wages in uh, uh, sort of services and blue-collar work go up. I think that's generally good, uh, but that's a story for another another time. Um, but this quote here that I'll read from Nick Bunker, who is the Economic Research Director for North America at Indeed. He says, the great resignation is over. After two plus years spent quitting and finding new and better opportunities, workers are now voluntarily leaving their jobs at the same rate they were prior to the pandemic. That's key. That's good. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. kind of coming back to the norm um, where there's more balance. How, what are your thoughts? I think that's good. And I think that's the, the first shooter drop we were looking for with uh, the soft landing, so to speak is uh First, we had to see the number of job openings and opportunities really come down, right? I, I remember we were talking about the 
two available jobs to any job, one job seeker was just so out of balance. Mm-hmm. It still kind of is high relative to who's looking for a job and jobs available, but it's cut, the gap is closing. And traditionally, it's always been every two job seekers looking for one job, which has been a sign of a relatively healthier economy. Again, I understand that's the expense of a lot of uh, frontline workers in that case, but what we're seeing is the slowdown of people quitting a job because they already had something else lined up with bigger incentives, right? So I think that's a good sign in terms of the inflation fight. Yep. Here's the silver lining here is the Fed's actually looking for this. So I'm looking at a chart from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and um, the um, the amount of jobs that were open in July fell to 8.83 million. So job openings, 8.83 million. That's down from 9.16 the month prior. And hires fell to 5.78 million. And both of these lines on this chart have been down ticking. Uh, the high, by the way, for job openings was uh, 12 million. So 12 million job openings. This was March of 2022, not that long ago. And it's been coming down ever since then to where it is right now at about 8.83. And then the high for hires peaked at just under 7 million, uh, 6.8 million. That was November of 2021. Um, so it makes sense. The hires peaked before the openings started to fall. Uh, but both of those numbers are actually very, very good uh, in terms of forward-looking interest rates. That is kind of one of the Fed's barometers for Huge, are what yeah. we doing is working. Yeah. Um, or it is what I'm not saying that well, but uh, basically, are there interest rate increases, you know, putting putting the, the ice on the economy? And I think that the, it looks like it is. It reminds me of the toilet paper situation. And again, I'm using a poor analogy comparing workers to toilet paper, but that scarcity issue of like the, the newspaper headlines of empty toilet paper shelves. What did mm-hmm. that cause people to do? Rush to their stores and load up on toilet paper. Mm-hmm. And I think once we saw a labor tightness, uh, employers rush to put job postings out and in multiple degrees in multiple areas. So one job, probably four postings in different areas. And that, yeah. that might have been inflated because everyone was rushing to get their toilet paper, right? They, everyone was suddenly desperate to get employees. They were, I guess, over overstepping or over publishing their, their job availability. And I think that created this bidding war for, you know, for, for workers. And I think that was good for workers, but I think the party's over. Uh, quits also fell to 2.3%, which is the lowest rate since January of 2021, which sounds like eons ago. Um, that means that the workers perceive the economy as harder to, to or the job market is harder to, to get. Um, this says candidates resign, uh, candidates resign and job search when they feel optimistic about the market, but there's general fear about 2023 across so many sectors. So they're not quitting, uh, for consumers, uh, the number that said that jobs are plentiful versus hard to get, it's now starting to teeter towards hard to get versus, oh yeah, there's tons of jobs. Yeah. I'm going to quit and get something yeah. better. Yeah. And no, that's unfortunately, good. It's healthy. Yeah, it's healthy. But yeah, it is at the expense of people who are unhappy at their job and really have no recourse for it at this moment, unless they start a business or whatever. But that's kind of how our economy has always been. 
Yeah. That's more normal than what we saw in the last two years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. That's all the time we have for today. How thanks. Uh, it's great to great to connect with you on all this stuff. This was fun. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you again in two weeks.